Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Hey, if you see any uh, confetti falling uh, from the ceiling or uh, find any around your seat, that's because we had made the biggest mess we've ever made uh, in here last night at our Dream Team Appreciation event. And... It's just a party where we celebrated the core and uh, the people who serve in all manner of roles in our church. If you missed it, one of the big points was the church is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of many. That is how the church is built. The church is not built on the next big thing and the next big author and the next big speaker or the next big worship leader. The church is built on people who sacrifice in so many different ways and kinds of ways and uh, some of them specializing in gifts and a passion and some of them just flat out willing to do what no one else is willing to do. This church is filled with people who just will get out of their house when no one else will leave their house and go do things that no one else is willing to do. And we honor you, appreciate you. And if you'd like to join the team, uh, anyone is welcome. The best way to do that is through Growth Track. So you could uh, join us for Growth Track tomorrow if you want. Tomorrow night's my favorite night of the month. And uh, that is as we fill this room with young people, college age through seventh grade, uh, for a student service. I'm so thankful for the people who built uh, into me uh, as a young person and uh, led me in small groups and through services like that and everything. And, and I'm just so, um, I'm just glad that I engaged as a young person in these types of things. So join us tomorrow night for that. Uh, today, if you'll pull out your message notes, uh, we're gonna finish this series called Not So Far-Fetched, which the que- with the question, is the Bible believable? And uh, we are passionate about the Bible around here. Um, and uh, I'll just be honest with you, I've been waiting for this message um, we did it last, but it's certainly not least, and I've been so excited to deliver this message for you tonight. Um, before we talk about the Christian view of Scripture, I want to I talk about what we can all agree upon. So whether you're a believer or unbeliever in the room, uh, maybe you're a believer but you have an unbelieving friend, let's just talk about what we can all agree on about the Bible. Let's dive into that. Four observations regardless of what you believe. These are just four observations about the Bible. The first one uh, is it's old. Okay, these aren't going to be really deep uh, theological profound points here, but it's old. The oldest sections of scripture are about 1500 BC. Uh, The oldest existing writings that humans have of any kind are the Bible. The newest or the most recent are 100 AD, still almost 2000 years old. And then there's the book of Revelation that finishes it with, uh, do not add any more. This is it. This is the end. And it's closed. And so even the newest parts are old. Number two, it's big. It's big. The Bible is a big book. Uh, The Bible that we carry around and the Bible that I carry around is deceptively small. Because it's tiny print on multiple columns written on tissue paper. Like, it's deceptively small. If you were to print the Bible like you printed any other book, it would take up books that would fill a shelf or shelves on a bookshelf. It's big. Uh, It's about 800,000 words compared to the average nonfiction book today is 50,000 words. Why is it so big? Well, it's because it's a collection of books. 
Uh, one Bible is a collection of many books uh, with all different genres. So the Bible isn't put together in chronological order. Uh, it's put together in the order of what category of kind of book they are. So it's got poetry and history and law and prophecy and everything in between. And to really make sense of the Bible, because it's old and because it's big, um, you've you got to get the Bible in a translation that you can read. So there's older English translations. There's more recent ones. They're translated with different purposes in mind. They're translated, folks, into different reading levels. So like sometimes I feel like we force a translation on someone when they, couldn't, they can't read at that level. So give them a Bible that they can get a, a Bible into a translation that you uh, can read. I would encourage you to get a study Bible, one that has notes in it as you're reading. I'm just showing you to show you that, that a good NIV study Bible. So that's what, I, if I were to recommend one today, it's an NIV study Bible. Be tremendously helpful. So it's going to have the scripture, but it's going to have notes on each page, uh, helping you understand the context and some of what it is saying. And uh, the NIV study Bible is a good way to go, but maybe use something different or have something different. I'm not knocking it. I'm not saying this is the only way or the only one, uh, but it's a good one. Number three, it's popular. It's not only is the Bible the best-selling book of all time, it's this best-selling book in the world every year. No book has outsold the Bible once in a single year. Uh, it's a publisher's dream. Most Christian publishers would be out of business if they didn't carry a Bible. And that's amazing to me because it's the only book in their catalog that every other competitor is also selling. That's how popular it is. Its popularity across cultures is unparalleled. In China, there have been times where you're required as a citizen to buy and to own certain books. And meanwhile, the Bible is being outlawed and guess what happens? The Bible during those times still outdistributed those required books. I just had a hoot studying the popularity of the Bible. I mean, it's just unmatched. Uh, Shakespeare has been translated into 60 languages. You know how many languages the Bible has been translated into? 2,200. Some of those languages are spoken by only 100 people, maybe. Some people dedicate, give up their whole life just to create a new language for a culture that's only an oral culture, just so they can translate the Bible into that language so that people can read it. That is remarkable. We should honor those people. Those people should be the Christian celebrities, the people that give up their whole life to translate the Bible, and you may or may not know this, but you're a part of that. Part of what you give when you give to Rockbrook uh, goes to tr the translating and distributing of Bibles through Voice of the Martyrs, whom we love very much. But it's tremendously popular, and it's a, a, a cross-cultural thing like anything else. So Coca-Cola is sometimes considered being the most present and appearing brand or thing on the planet, and uh, I've, I've been guilty of thinking that Coke is more popular than the Bible. And it's just not. Okay? The, it's the Bible. It, the Bible is the most ubiquitous, the most present and appearing thing on the planet. It's not McDonald's. It's not Coke. It's not Starbucks. They don't even come close to the Bible. The Bible is the most present and appearing and treasured thing on planet Earth. Fourth observation, even if you don't like the Bible, we can all agree on this, it's powerful. It's powerful in a lot of different ways, artistically, 
It's powerful. I mean, you, you can't understand art if you don't understand the Bible. It's philosophically powerful. So everything, most of Western philosophy is footnotes to the Bible, either supporting or going against. Okay, psychologically, it's powerful. In fact, even one of the best-selling books right now, The 12 Rules to Life, is from a professor in Toronto who uh, just goes through um, all the psychological things that we learn from Scripture. And he says, look, it's been here all along. Like, it's been sitting here right in front of us the whole time. It's tremendously powerful. It's, the Bible is the biggest source of political power on earth. Uh, you, you have to admit that, whether you believe in it or not. People are either holding up or going against the Bible. It's the most outlawed book ever. And it just keeps going. The more people try to suppress it, the more powerful it becomes. It's powerful. I don't, you, I've heard so many stories, you've heard them too, of someone's life just being transformed by opening up the Bible and reading the Bible. Someone in prison gets a hold of a Bible and it transforms their life. People struggling with all manner of things, their mind just being renewed from reading Scripture. So four things we can all agree on. It's old, it's big, it's popular, it's powerful, but what's the Christian view of Scripture? Another way of asking that is, how do you explain all that? How do you explain just how stinking popular this book is? How do you explain how powerful, I mean, it's just not happening with any other book. How do you explain how powerful it is? Well, for 2,000 years, Christians have explained it, and it's easy to explain. Write this in. God wrote it. Hello? God wrote it. I mean, if God wrote a book, you'd think it'd be a bestseller, Right? And if this came from God, it explains everything we said above. Why is it so powerful? Why does it survive so many attacks? Because God wrote it. And you can't be a Christian without believing in the trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, I do this from time to time. Every once in a while, I'll say, this is what Christians believe. And then I'll say something. And then inevitably, someone will come to me and say, are you saying I'm not a Christian? Are you saying I'm not a Christian because I don't believe in the flood? or I don't believe in the virgin birth, or I don't believe in something that the Bible says, or that I choose not to believe. Are you saying I'm not a Christian? And I say, yes, that's what I'm saying. And I don't, I'm not trying to be mean about it. Just definitionally, this is what Christians believe. And I'm not saying it like a challenge. Maybe you don't want to be a Christian, but I'm just defining who a Christian is, and a Christian is someone who believes that it's the inspired word of God and the basis for our faith. And I'm not saying you can't come to Rockbrook Church or come to this church if you have doubts about the Bible. I'm not saying you can't come here if you have questions about it. I'm not even saying you can't voice those questions. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing this series for crying out loud. Ask the questions. Have the doubts. That's okay. This is a safe place to wrestle with this. If you bring up in your small group that you're struggling with a doubt or wrestling with a certain thing, they're not going to look at you like you're crazy. That's why we're here, is to come around the Christian view. But I am saying to be a Christian means believing certain things, and that certain things that you can only believe if you believe that the Bible is supernaturally trustworthy, and that's the Christian view of Scripture. Now, there's a number of different ways I could talk about this tonight, talk about the Christian view and the sources, and we could go back to um, third and fourth centuries and and talk about the church councils and all that stuff's fun to look at. 
Um, but I think it's much more interesting to look at Christ himself. Like, what does Christ say about Scripture? And you might say, well, isn't that circular, like to talk about Scripture from Scripture? But you got to remember that, that these are historical documents. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But like the people that wrote the accounts of Christ, they didn't know necessarily that they were writing Scripture. They were writing a historical document of account, an account of Christ's life. And they were writing something that holds up to textual criticism. We'll talk about that. But if a guy can claim to be God and then prove it by rising from the dead and ascending into heaven, I want to know what he says about Scripture. Okay, I'm on board with what he says about it. So let's look at a chunk of scripture here. We're just going to read this uh, all throughout without stopping if I can. And uh, this is uh, Jesus at, at one of his most human moments, at one of his weakest moments. And let's see what he does when he is in those moments. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Here you see the spiritual, supernatural power. When the devil comes gunning for Jesus, Jesus uses scripture as his defense. He says, here's a verse. When he says it is written, it's not written in a novel. He's not quoting Harry Potter here. He's quoting the word of God. He's quoting something powerful. He's quoting something that's a double-edged sword. It's alive and active. It's supernatural. And the devil even tries to use it against him, and Jesus wouldn't have it. That's why Paul calls it the sword of the spirit. Even in the weakest, most frail moments, it's powerful. And this is the way you do spiritual warfare, because it's a supernatural battle. And you want to go into a spiritual battle with something supernatural that wouldn't have any power if they were just sayings of man. They were inspired words of God, and even God would use them in this battle. Let's jump a bit forward in the text on the other side of your outline. Continue to see what Jesus says about scripture. Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. What's the law and the prophets? It's scripture. It's the Old Testament. He says, don't think I came to abolish scripture. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, 
not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He goes on, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's go back to verse 18. He says something quite amazing. He says, not the least stroke of a pen. That's, that's the words. If you go back to the word that, words that he's using, it's the word for seraph. So in typography, you've got two types of fonts. So you've got ones like Helvetica, which is the first line. It's just basic. There's no decorations. There's no serifs. But on the second line, it's Times New Roman, and you have serifs, and you have decorations. And Jesus is saying not even the decorative lines on any letter are going to disappear. He says heaven and earth may disappear, but not one letter from the Bible will disappear. If he's saying nature could disappear, if nature disappears, but the Bible still stands, he's saying this book is beyond nature. It's supernatural. And when he says every letter, he says the whole thing is from God. The whole thing is supernatural. So when people in our culture say, well, Jesus never addressed such and such. So they'll look at a social issue or a point or something like that and they'll say, Jesus never said anything about fill in the blank. And you, you've already don't understand Jesus then because Jesus saying, is saying that the whole canon is Jesus. So to say, well, Jesus doesn't address it. Well, yes, he does, but he does over here. The whole thing is the word of God. The whole thing is Jesus addressing it. And that's the Christian view of Scripture. That's always been the Christian view of Scripture. It didn't come later. Jesus himself to his followers is saying, if you're one of my followers, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, this is what followers of Christ believe. So we can all agree on some things, but then what happens is Christians come in and say this is the word of God. But you already knew that before you came in here. But why do we have a hard time believing that? Why do we have a hard time believing that this is the word of God? Well, I'm going to guess it's for one of four reasons. And these kind of build build on each other. I'm excited. I'm excited about this section um, of this message. The first objection to, so people say it's not the word, God didn't write it. And the objection is, well, was it God or humans? And I just said the Christian view of scripture is that God wrote it. I used the image of God's pen, but earlier we said it was written over hundreds of years. It's written with 40 different authors. Which is it? Did God write it or did humans write it? What are you saying? Well, it's both. And you say it can't be both. It can. It can be both. Uh, For instance, if you know anything about uh, the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith says that there's these gold plates that no one has ever seen except him, and he learned to translate from those plates and learned the language for the purpose of translating those gold plates, and then he just forgot. Then he just forgot the language and everything else, and that's the whole thing. Like, that's all you got. So that's, the, the, that's all you got for the Book of Mormon. 
versus the Bible, like the actual word of God, where you have actual manuscripts from actual authors in the original language. So the question is, okay, how do you have this human record, but then what about God? What, what makes you say God wrote it? Well, a great illustration that American uh, theologians love to use, and I love it too, is the illustration of a bridge. Okay, specifically the Brooklyn Bridge. Who built the Brooklyn Bridge? One guy, Washington Roebling, and no one else could have done it. How, how many people have seen the Brooklyn Bridge? I haven't seen it, but everyone I talk to just says it's amazing, that it's absolutely amazing. One guy and only one guy could have done it. Now, you kind of have this Trinitarian thing going on because his father came up with the plans, uh, but then, then Washington carried it through, but then he got real sick and his wife finished it through to the end. So you kind of have father, son, and holy wife going on, right? And... Uh, <laughs> You might say, well, what about who laid, like, the bricks? Who laid the bricks? Like, you say Washington Roebling built the Brooklyn Bridge, but who laid the stones? Exactly. So there's people who were involved, the people who did the laying of the stones. But the whole thing was completed during Washington Roebling's lifetime, and it was one plan that he oversaw. He oversaw the laying of every brick, And so God is the architect or the author in this instance, and he's overseen it, overseen it for 3,500 years now. And you might say, that's an interesting theory, Ryland, but you started this series talking about the evidence. Where's the evidence? Well, I think there is evidence, and that is the remarkable internal coherence of Scripture, It's impossible to explain it. It is intellectually impossible to explain the internal coherence of Scripture apart from God. Because you have this 1,600-year span, basically, and somehow it just all fits together as one book. I mean, the first page and the last page, I mean, are even bookends with the same imagery, Well, couldn't the people who wrote the later parts look at the earlier stuff and make it fit? Well, in some cases, actually, no. Uh, They didn't have access to it. But even if they did have access, some of the stuff was written that didn't even make sense until the later stuff was written. It's just amazing how much that, I mean, Jesus was explaining things about the Old Testament that people were going, whoa, and then Paul is explaining things that that's why this was written, and it just has this amazing thing that happens on the inside that internally it is united. And that doesn't just happen because group authorship is a very dicey endeavor. Okay, speaking of bestsellers, you almost never see a bestseller written by a group. It it just doesn't happen. Uh, For something to stand and to stand like this, there has to be a mastermind behind the whole thing. And that's how it is with the Brooklyn Bridge. There weren't several different plans. There was one plan and it stands. And not only does it stand, it stands majestically with beauty. And it's built for horse-drawn carriages, for crying out loud. And there's semis crossing it as we speak. And it stands. And it's a testament to the designer and the person who built it, who wrote it. And the same thing with the Bible. It stands majestically with power. And it, it, I just, it's far-fetched to believe that it's an accident, 
that all these different people from different continents and countries and different languages just cobbled together this story that has so much power and unity. So God or humans? Well, the answer is both. But then it kind of falls into the next thing. So, okay, maybe you say, okay, maybe God wrote it. I'll go with you on the first point. And maybe God inspired human beings to write these words. But I read the Da Vinci Code and I know the people put it together. Well, let's go to number two, and that's determining the canon, okay? The argument that people use is that people, the human councils assembled the canon. Uh, They assembled the canon, and they just decided, people just decided which books would be included and which books wouldn't. And the Da Vinci Code is a big problem because it's fiction. It's written meant to be fiction, and people take it as though it's real. Like the writer, that's... He wrote a fiction book and people take it to be real. And that's what's happening with these church councils is that they tell, we look back and people tell the story that it was some big political battle, like there was this power play and there were some books included and some weren't. And how do we know that the right books got included? And what you have though is lists of the books by people who had nothing to do with each other, but yet they have the same list. And finally, only when some other books tried to weasel their way in did the church council say, look, these are the books that everyone's agreed upon for a long time. We just need to formalize this and canonize it. And they just made official what was already known. So the gospels that were coming in later that the that caused them to do this were called the Gnostic Gospels. And they come in a hundred years later and they try to claim that they're also Gospels or that they're the real Gospels. It would be like uh, if we had a new version of the Declaration of Independence that came in in the 19th century and people said, well, maybe we don't have the real version of the Declaration of Independence. No, no, No one would come to that conclusion. They would say, no, this is easy. The one that we have is the real one. This is a slam dunk. It's overseen by God. And if he can write the words, he can oversee the process. Um, But on a human level, it was just not nearly as contentious as it's made out to be. The canonizing was simply making official what was already known. You may want to write that down. It's just making official what was known. Number three, so, so maybe you say, okay, God wrote the words and we have the right books, but it's been copied and translated so many times. How do we even know that what we have is what the original author said? You get what I'm saying? This is how the progression goes. Okay, maybe God wrote it. Maybe we have the right books, but how do we know that over the years, like that's not really what Paul was saying. That's not what really uh, Luke said. And people think that it's like the translating and copying is just this massive game of telephone that happened with Paul's letter. And then it, and it's, they say, I don't know how many times I've heard this. They say it's been copied so many times. Well, every book, okay, this Bible, do you know how many times this Bible has been copied? One time. Every Bible that you have has been copied exactly one time. Now, we don't have the original manuscript that each author wrote. No one is claiming that, that we did, but it's still been copied one time, okay? It's not like it was copied from the original language uh, to German to Latin to English. No, when 
they make an English translation, they go back to the original language. They don't go to stacks of already translated Bibles. They go down to the root. And so no one's claiming that we have the original manuscript, so we don't have Paul's piece of paper that was touched by Paul's hand. So how do we know the copies accurately reflect what the original author wrote? Well, there's a science to this. Um, So just because you don't know doesn't mean no one knows. Or just because I don't know doesn't mean no one knows. It's a science. It's called textual criticism. Like there's people who give their whole lives to studying this. And it comes down to a couple of things. Uh, How many copies do we have and how close are they to the original? So as an example, the textual criticism, it applies to all ancient texts. So let's compare the Bible with another ancient text and that would be Caesar's Gaelic Wars. We have about 10 ancient manuscripts or or ancient copies and nobody doubts that Caesar wrote that. No one would stand up and say and be taken seriously that Caesar didn't write that. But let's compare that, I mean, let's compare that paper trail with what we know about the Bible. How many copies do we have of the Bible? How many manuscripts? 24,000 of the New Testament. The earliest fragments and manuscripts within 100 years. So what you have in your Bible is the same as what's on the page of the person who wrote it. What's in this Bible is the same as what's on the page of the person who wrote it. And you might say, well, people could make copying errors. Yes, people can make copying errors, but 24,000 people don't make the same error. And they're coming from all different places, and so you compare, and again, it's a science. Um, So going back to the Christian view, why is it like this? The Christians, uh, I mean, the Christians did not have any political power to begin with. And so how were this many copies of this text preserved, a paper trail unlike any um, other ancient document? I mean, 5,000 Greek manuscripts alone, 5,000 of those are Greek manuscripts. How would have that happen? Well, it's God at work. Um, so that's the third option. Third option is to say, well, it's, it's not really what they wrote. But let's move on to objection number four. Maybe you say, okay, God wrote it. The canon was determined successfully, and it's preserved with accuracy. Um, But number four, what about the parts I don't like? (laughs) And um, I'll tell you, this is really what I want to talk about tonight. Um, So we're really just getting going. Um, If you've been completely bored so far, tune back in for this. This is the last objection, and this isn't about history or how things played out or textual criticism. This objection comes down to, I read the Bible, but there's things that contradict my basic values as a human being, my core values and beliefs. So I can't possibly believe it's the word of God because it says things I don't agree with and that I find offensive. And the logic of this objection is downstream. It says it upsets me so it couldn't possibly be true. And then you'd maybe say, well, it's not just me it's like all my friends. And it's just not me. It's a lot of people I read and see on TV. And it's not just me. It's a lot of my professors. 
And what you're saying is it doesn't only contradict your personal values, it contradicts cultural values. The Bible contradicts our cultural values. Values that are held dear to our culture. And if the Bible is a supernatural book, if God really wrote this book and God wrote it and it's not a product of culture or a product of any culture, then it's going to have to contradict every culture on some point. Different points for different cultures. And the fact that it contradicts your cultural values, that doesn't cut against it being the word of God. That proves even more that indeed it is the word of God. I want to illustrate this. In 2004, there was a remake of, of a 1975 movie of a book called The Stepford Wives. And I haven't seen the films. I'm not recommending the films or reading the book. It's just an incredible illustration for this, okay? And it's the story of these husbands who got tired of their wives arguing with them and not doing what they say. It was originally written in another time period. So they put chips in the back of their wives' heads to make them perfectly sweet all the time. And people want to do that with God. They want to step for God. They want him to stop saying stuff they don't like and say only things that they agree with. And if you have a God that agrees with you on everything, never argues with you at the dinner table, never says anything you don't like, always does what you want him to do and perfectly fits into your image of what you want a God to be, you know one thing for absolute sure is that you don't have a real God, you have a product of your imagination. Tim Keller says this, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idolized version of yourself. And the only way you get a real God, a God who can infuriate you and who can call you on the carpet and can do like what he did with Job and say, where were you when I made the foundations of the earth? The only way you get a God like that is if you take the Bible and take it as it is and don't edit anything out. That's the only way you get that God. And if you don't believe the parts you don't like, how can you really believe the parts you do like? Because the Bible says a lot of wonderful things. And people say, I would, people say, I'd like to believe I was forgiven and I am forgiven. And I'd like to believe that I'm a child of God and that God lives within me, and I'd like to believe that God is love, and I know the Bible says those things, but I struggle to believe them. Why do you struggle to believe them? Because you don't believe the Bible. And you don't take the whole thing. You have to believe the parts you don't like with the parts you do like. All of the, then all of a sudden you're on solid footing. Because you're not over, if, if you're over here editing, you're always going to be looking over your shoulder and saying, I believe this because I chose it. Because you did violence to the text. And that's the other option. Just slash the text. Just cut stuff out. And not only do violence to the text, but do violence to God himself. So back to the Stepford Wives, in the original version, uh, it was more of a horror story. They didn't put chips in their heads. The husbands actually murdered their wives and then built robots instead. And the husbands say, we don't like our real wives, so let's kill them and make ones that are better. Ryland, why are you using this gruesome illustration? 
because it's remarkably similar to what we do with Jesus. Because we were waiting for a savior, we wanted a savior, the real savior shows up, and at first we're so excited and follow him in droves. And then he starts saying some things we don't like and people start bailing to the point that they kill him. And we do the same thing today. We say, this isn't the God I signed up for. Let's kill this savior and maybe we can make up one better for ourselves. And that's what happened with Jesus and that's what happens with Jesus to this day. We still do that. And we have the option to kill the real God and invent a God of our imaginations, a God in our own image. And I'll tell you one thing, if you do that, if you do that initially, you will really enjoy it. You'll really like this God you made up for yourself. He's much better looking. Uh, he's just nice all the time. He never says anything uh, that, he's got, that you disagree with. He's got more in common with you. And it's a lot easier to get along with this God than the real God. But what you do when you do that, what you miss is warmth and love and relationship. And for that matter, salvation the only way you get those things if you take him as he is. It's the only way you get salvation is when you worship God as he is because that's what he does with you. He takes you as you are. At least that's what the Bible says. So what now? What do I do now? Well, you, you get into the Bible and you might take the recommendation of the NIV study Bible or grab a free Bible that we have for you today at the info table. But the bigger thing we want to do as believers is we want to come under and live under and just be, exist under and be under the Bible's authority. In the book of Nehemiah, we see that uh, the wall of the city of Jerusalem was in ruins. The city was in ruins. The faith was in ruins. The people of God were in ruins. Nehemiah had a vision to rebuild the temple. And the people of God, and he knew it started with rebuilding the wall. So he rebuilt the wall against great opposition, regathered the people. And once the people were regathered, a tower was built in their midst and a scribe by the name of Ezra went up to the top of the tower. Let's look at this in scripture. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the Bible or the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now think about this for a moment. Yes, this was set in motion by a great demise. And God is resurrecting uh, his people and the hope of his people. It would be like if the gospels were taken away from Kansas City and all the surrounding churches and the doors were closed and locked and shut down and then all of a sudden a new movement came in and the gospels were opened after a generation of being kept from us. And when this happened, all the people who could see Ezra, they stood up in honor of the word of God and he praised God. They praised God and everyone praised God. And there wasn't even a message yet. There wasn't even a sermon yet. There wasn't even a song yet. Like this is in response to the word of God. And it was just an honor and a respect for the word of God. So the Bible is not some like 
periodical we get in the mail or some magazine or just another app on our phone, when we take the Bible into our hands, we maybe not stand up physically, but we stand up in our hearts and we say, this is the word of God. And we recognize that it is above us. The Bible was above them and we are under its authority. And we're going to put ourselves under the authority of the Bible tonight. Let's pray together. Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you have an outline with the precious words of Scripture printed on it, maybe you read the Bible electronically, maybe you want to open up that Bible app now. And I think it's just fitting for us to follow the words of scripture and to follow God's people and to put ourselves under the Bible's authority. And so if you have that Bible, that Bible app or that outline with the words of scripture printed on it, would you just hold it up in the air above your head? And let's pray, God, you know how we want to play the judge, how we want to be the ones to decide what's true and what's not. And you see how strong this desire is in us. But at the same time, we want to be connected to something greater than ourselves. We want to be connected to something that's beyond us. We want to be connected to you, connected to the real you. So God, I ask tonight that this grip we have on determining our own values and not letting anyone tell us anything, it's in my heart, it's in the heart of every person. God, I ask that you, you loosen our fingers on that grip and you help us grip the word of God, that you pry that grip apart and open us up to you and help us latch on to the authority of the word of God, that you come and speak to us and show us who you really are, not edited, but who you really are. And God, just tonight, just as a symbol, we put this Bible above our heads And like in the days of Nehemiah, we say we are under the authority of the word of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.